Hello, it's Guy Hansen, and welcome to Clubhouse Conversation. Every summer in Kansas City, 25 men have one simple mission, to win. Starting pitchers, corner power hitters, middle relievers, speedy gloves up the middle, closers, utility infielders, backup catchers, and they're each remembered here. From 1969 to last year, all Royals careers have been preserved with the most comprehensive collection of facts, memories, and stories in existence. Welcome to Clubhouse Conversation. And boy, oh boy, do we have a treat for you today. It's Dave Glad you're along for another edition of Clubhouse Conversation, the place where we catch up with all your favorite current and former Royals and hear amazing story after amazing story, giving these guys a place to be preserved and remembered for all time and share their memories with family, friends, and of course, the fans of this great Kansas City Royals baseball club. Now, I'm very excited today here, going to squeeze in another off-season interview with a former Royals player before we get to opening day. It's March of 2017 right now, in case you're listening to this in the future and don't know when this was recorded. March of 2017, about to kick off the 2017 season. And I'm joined by Guy Hansen, who spent 11 years as a pitching coach in the Royals organization, including four at the major league level here in KC, parts of 91, 92, and 93, In 2005 as well, Guy also served as a Royals area scout from 81 to 83, was a national cross-checker for the Royals from 94 to 95, was a bullpen coach 96 to 97, and way back in the day was a minor league pitcher for the Royals from 1969 until 1972 out of UCLA. Now, Guy Hansen has a new book out, and I highly, highly recommend you pick it up. It's called A Baseball Guy. It's an autobiography. You can get that off of Amazon. A Baseball Guy is the name of this book. We're going to talk all about it over the next 90 minutes with Guy Hansen and a number of the amazing stories in there. We're going to hear about a guy who loves the Royals as much as you and I do. This is a man who helped scout and get the Royals Brett Saberhagen, Jeff Conine, Carlos Beltran, on and on and on. Cecil Fielder before he was traded away. We'll hear the stories that... Guy going out there incognito some of the time to find the Royals players. Competitive as heck. A guy that bleeds Royal Blue even to this day. I can tell you that from getting to know Guy over the last few weeks. Huge fan of the Kansas City Royals and went on besides his work with the Royals also to do a number of years in the Braves organization as a pitching coach and still works to this day with a number of amateur up to professional pitchers. Is famous for his renowned barn in Richmond, Virginia, where all of the 2005 Royals pitchers except for one went to visit him personally at his house before that 2005 season. And we'll talk all about that and so much more. Heck, let's bring him in on hold right now. Guy Hansen joins us on Clubhouse Conversation. First of all, Guy, you know, thanks for your time, and how's everything going with you? It's going good. I mean, I've had some uh, sixth graders uh, call me last night, and they made their middle school teams, which was great because a couple of them were little midgets, you know, going from 50 feet to, to 60 feet. So that was that was very cool last night. And today, my my uh, my youngest daughter uh, is a converted uh, right-handed hitter to a left-handed side. She got a couple of base hits, and she can really run. So uh, I got a chance to see her hit before I came home to do a couple of more bullpens before I talked to you. So it's been a, it's been a good day. Yeah, you're very very active. So you actually have you're out there near near Richmond, right? And you actually have a barn out in your backyard where you have a, like a you know all the pitching stuff. Kind of describe that for us. Yeah. Yeah, uh, when I when I first moved here, uh, I had some people that heard me talk, 
at a clinic uh, that the Richard Rays put together, and uh, it was called the Virginia Sports Complex. Eventually, these people wanted me to stop going to Puerto Rico and actually stay here in the area. So they ended up, uh, we ended up building an extension to an existing garage. And everybody calls it a barn. It doesn't look like a barn. It looks like a big garage. But uh, that's where I've been doing these, these uh, bullpens for, for many, many years with young kids. And there's been an occasional top-end uh, major league guy that's come in to, to throw. But it's, uh, it's about a 60-yard walk for me, so <laughs> it's no big deal. And, and, and I enjoy doing it. Uh, I enjoy being around the kids and trying to make them as good as they can be. And, uh, and by doing this here in Richmond, I, I get a chance to keep an eye on my, my three teenage daughters, which is uh, <laughs> pretty tough because they're good-looking they got boys chasing them. So. <laughs> Uh-oh. I'd hate to be the guy who's taking them out from reading your book. Speaking of your oh, book, yeah. you're, that right. <laughs> you're as intense. You're, you're just like me, like intense and, uh, you know, there's a lot of different words you could use probably, right? But intense and uh, high-strong maybe to a degree. But uh, the book is called A Baseball Guy, which is phenomenal. I just finished reading it last night. We're going to talk a lot about this book, and I want everyone listening to uh, check it out. It's got loads of royal stuff in it, by the way. Also, some great stuff, uh, you know, for the young pitcher or the older pitcher or anywhere in between. Lots of cool stuff I learned about. So, so kind of talk about, uh, I guess, give us a, for those who haven't read it, kind of give us an overview of what's in the book and uh, what made you decide to write it and what it means to you. Well, I had to do the book because my dad passed away a couple of years ago and some people in Kansas City years ago uh, had heard a little bit about my background with my mom being in show business and her name was Lola Jensen, the Queen of Taps, and my dad was a stuttering band leader and uh, worked for Bob Wyan with Bob's Big Boy Restaurants. And anyways, to make a long story short, we never did the book when I first got to Kansas City as a major league pitching coach. But when my dad was on his uh, his, his deathbed, so to speak, uh, the last word that came out of his mouth was book. And we had talked about doing it, and so I <clears throat> decided I'm going to push forward mainly because of uh, I know his his love for the game and my love for the game and me wanting to try to to get a lot of people that are uh, sometimes they they don't get their opportunity to uh, to be talked about I'm talking about the little guys the associate scouts the bird dogs the the, the full-time scouts uh, the young uh, coaches that, that coach these guys that get to the big leagues that very seldom uh, get much credit for what they do so I just kept putting together a lot of information, and uh, thankfully I met a, a young man by the name of Tom Gresham, who's a wonderful writer here uh, in, uh, in Richmond, and he did, he did a story on me years ago to kind of talk about my background. And uh, it, we pieced it all together, and uh, you, like I said, you've read it, and you know stories about Conine and Saberhagen and Bo Jackson, and you know I, I tried to keep it light, I tried to to keep it in a position where where people would not want to uh, turn the book away because there's just you know too much gobbledygook and, and tough to read. I just tried to keep it flowing, and but uh, and then I had to add because I've probably done as many just individual bullpens with with young people over the years as probably anybody on the planet. So I had to put in something about uh, you know mechanics and things that I know are important to keep. To, to help kids maximize their abilities. Yeah. So it's just a kind of a hodgepodge of a lot of things, and Tom did such a great job in blending it together that people actually think I'm a wonderful writer and a great editor. 
<laughs> but I'm a baseball uh, grunt. You know, I I love working with young people, and uh, and I'm looking forward to as I wake up each day, I'm trying to learn something new about pitching. Yeah, you, you taught me a lot. You know, you, we talked uh, a little bit before the interview, but you know, sequencing, I learned a lot more about that. This is good for any you know kind of baseball fan, any casual fan, any diehard fan, even the diehards that think they know everything about baseball. Trust me, obviously we don't, but just learning some of these things that you, you know you pick up through your book, and it was a, an excellent read, very easy read. I read it in about three nights and, and really enjoyed it. So I definitely we'll talk more about that in a bit because I have a few more questions from the book. But I want to start kind of from the beginning and work forward. You ready to go way back to your childhood? Let's do it. Come on. All right. So Taft High School uh, is where you went in Woodland Hills, California. So let's start. You mentioned your mom a little bit there, and it had to be kind of cool, by the way, as you mentioned in the book that Joe DiMaggio hit on your mom once. But to talk about uh, talk oh, about man. both of your parents and uh, kind of their cool stories. And then also I want to make sure we mentioned you, you mentioned your dad, how much he, he loved baseball. He sacrificed a lot for you uh, to play growing up. Talk about that. Oh, heck. They did big time, and my mom, uh, yeah, Joe DiMaggio, the, the, the story around the house with Joe DiMaggio was that if my dad ever really got on me or my brother or sister too much, my, my mom would, would come in the room and she'd say, do you want to talk about Joe? Do you want me to talk about Joe? <laughs> and it was like Joe had, Joe had said to my mom, uh, you can, uh, Lola, you can put your shoes underneath my bed anytime you want to. <laughs> and that would stop my dad. <laughs> it would be very, very quiet in the room. So, yeah, Mickey Rooney had interest in my mom. I mean, the, you can see her picture in the book. She was beautiful. And uh, so uh, she had, she had uh, her, we had a garage that, uh, that never had a car in it because she had her tap dancing, all the mirrors, all of the stuff, all of the place and the, and the floor for a professional dancer. And uh, what was, made it cool for me is I could watch a ball game, and then if she wasn't giving lessons to somebody or working on a routine herself, I could go in there and kind of emulate what I saw on television from some of the greatest pitchers in the world. So that, that was wonderful. I'd go in there and work on my swing and, and stuff. But my dad, you know, from a baseball standpoint, you know, probably the, the key thing that helped me is I guess he saw some cockiness entering into my <laughs> my on-field play is he, instead of me graduating from 12 to 13 and going to Pony Colt, he decided he was going to drive me across Los Angeles, 40 miles to East Los Angeles, and he got me into a Babe Ruth league. And uh, he did it, you know, because I guess I was, uh, I was too cocky, at least in his eyes, and it was against uh, it was Samoans, many blacks, uh, uh, Mexican guys, and I'm a 13-year-old kid, and I got my ass kicked. And it really, it really had me grow up and appreciate some things about the game of baseball. And then I came back. I remember I came back as a uh, as a 14 to that Pony Colt, taking it from 60 feet to 56, and I beat. I think I beat the number one and number two Pony Colt teams in the United States because it was like you know taking candy for a baby. So that got me started on. Uh, uh, really uh, on baseball and moving forward. You know, I was I was a long time surfer. I learned how to surf when I was about twelve, and uh, like like to, to to surf big waves. I never went to Mavericks and you know some of the biggest waves in the world. I never went to that extent, but uh, that was a big part of my life. But my mom and dad would take me really just about any surfing venue or uh, 
uh, take me to ball games. It, it was it was wonderful. They were they were terrific and, and they were busy people too. So you went to UCLA then uh, to pitch. You did a number of awesome things there uh, as a Bruin. So first of all, you know one of the things I liked and one of the themes throughout your book was you kind of you know quit making excuses, make the best out of it. You know make uh, you know make lemonade out of lemons or however you want to put it. But I mean there was a day that you got eleven consecutive strikeouts back in 1969. That was the NCAA record. And and kind of talk about that day. There was there was an you know interesting baseball field you guys were playing on, right? Yeah, well, I had actually pitched on this uh, in this diamond in Encino, California, one time against uh, uh, against the number one uh, pitcher in the in, in the city, Pete Lentine. He went to Birmingham High School, and I had been there before, and we needed to get some 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 action in myself and the and the two other uh, starters that we had Friday, Saturday, Sunday starters. I want to say it was on a Tuesday game, and there had been torrential rain. We couldn't get on our field. So they end up finding this all-dirt field, and uh, I knew what we were up uh, up against when we got there, and everybody's panicking. I mean, the pitchers are panicking. The hitters are licking their freaking chops, you know. But uh, I always, because I, I work so hard in front of those mirrors that my mom put up for dancing, I knew my delivery was always going to be intact. And I personally l- looked for situations where there were conditions. I wanted conditions. So where, where I embraced the fact that it was a flat mound, uh, the rest of them were panicking. Just like, uh, I mean, I remember when I was at UCLA uh, as a pitching coach, and, and, and we had a very, very high mound. Uh, uh, I'm not quite sure it was uh, the legitimate mound, but I know our mound in the bullpen was... Uh, was uh, exactly the same dimensions, and the mound uh, on the other side was about two inches tall. But very, very pretty uh, uh, mound and, and uh, atmosphere. But I remember Randy Johnson couldn't get through the first uh, the first inning twice at UCLA because the mound was uh, completely different. But going back to uh, the uh, the situation uh, at uh, Balboa Park, I got as low as I could in my delivery, very, very similar to Tom Seaver. And I said, if anything, I'm going to be deceptive. I'm going to keep the damn ball down, and we're, uh, you know, we're going to we're going to get through this four innings that they gave me. Well, I struck out the first first eleven guys, and that actually came after striking out the side against Pepperdine about four or five days before. So that that was that was 14 straight strikeouts. But the eleven, I was told by uh, Tom Singer, who was uh, at the time, I think he ended up being a writer for the L.A. Times, that that was an NCAA record. But I just got as low as I could, and I had the thing working. You know, I invented a pitch called the thing, and uh, it was a pitch that the hitters just it baffled them. Very similar to a split finger forkball type, thrown with real good arm speed, and they couldn't hit the ball. In fact, the the, the twelfth out was was an on no two pitch, and it was the softest pop up probably in the history of college baseball. I mean, yeah, I, I caught it, and, and that was the end of my four innings. But, yeah, it was an NCAA record at the time, according to our uh, our guy that handled the stats. Hmm. And you played with uh, you know some great teammates at UCLA, guys like Chris Chambliss, for example. And then you made it to Omaha, I believe that was that same year, right? You know, What was your experience like in Omaha? Well, that was a... That was a great experience for UCLA baseball. Shambles was uh, the best player in college baseball, and it was amazing. The only two errors the guy made the whole the whole season were, were extra inning errors, uh, where we lost a couple of ball games. 
uh, in in Omaha, and, and, and you know, talk about a great great player. I think he was. We were doing our finals there. I think that had something to do with it. But playing, but getting a chance to play there, and I could have been the goat. Uh, not not Chris. I remember we had a uh, we had a went into extra innings against Arizona State, and there was a there was a ball that was smoked down the right field line with a, with two outs and a guy at first base. And it took kind of a kangaroo hop. It wasn't like a one hop over the fence. It was like a four hopper that hit a rock or, or something, and it bounced over the uh, bounced over the fence. And I struck the next guy out. So I, I wasn't the goat of that game, but uh, that was a tremendous experience. UCLA. Uh, it, it was it was wonderful. My time at UCLA, actually coming in with with no fanfare whatsoever, and ended up being. Uh, having a tremendous career there, you know, and, and that's where I, 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 I try to tell the story to, to young players to, to never give up because no one thought, in fact, Jerry Weinstein, who was the coach of Israel, and my best friend Tom Gamboa, who was, he was his third-base coach. Tom's not Jewish, but he, he was the third-base coach uh, with Weinstein for the Israel team that, that uh, ended up getting beat by Japan. He did not think I could uh, uh, pitch at the D1 level for UCLA, going against the Stanfords and the Arizona States and whatever. I pitched four or five innings my freshman year when freshmen uh, only played freshman ball, just like a Lou Alcindor. He was playing freshman basketball. And uh, bottom line was uh, I learned this pitch after after figuring out I was not going to hit decent college pitching and uh, invented a pitch and got enough uh, – advertising so to speak through the LA Times that they took notice of me and all of a sudden I'm one of their frontline starters I went from the doggone doghouse to the penthouse learning a pitch and just staying with it so I, I did it with grit toughness good mechanics uh, deception uh, that I know is extremely important for every young man but uh, uh, and really kind of honed in on some things that I believe are consistent to the best in the world by the way, I'm not real happy with UCLA. I took him in every single one of my March Madness brackets to win the whole thing, and I'm sitting on the sideline now <laughs> a week I'm and a half more, early. I'm, I'm more upset than you are. I mean, the, I, I live and die at UCLA basketball, and John Wooden, is, for me, is the finest coach of, of sports uh, ever. And I, I actually uh, took his course at UCLA with Tommy Prothro, who was a chain-smoking cigarette guy and, and drank uh, Coca-Cola. And, and I sat in two other times. In fact, my roommates, uh, <laughs> my roommates were the fifth, the, the, the sixth, and seventh guys on UCLA's great, great basketball teams uh, in college. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I'm, uh, I, I'm, I'm as upset as you are. Yeah, I, I, didn't, I didn't lay down any money on it though. Yeah, <laughs> smart guy. Never betting your own team. Well, so the Royals end up uh, drafting you then, 44th round, 1969 amateur draft. So, I mean, if you think back to the scouting process, were you legitimately expecting to get drafted, quote-unquote, and do you remember the Royals scouting you, or did you think they were going to you know, select you possibly? No, I thought I'd get selected. I mean, I pitched enough big games against uh, you know some high-end guys Although there was one game where I struck out 15 against Washington, and there was another kid named Hanson, I think with an O, that pitched for Washington. And I can remember, I mean, 15 guys, and it was a pretty pretty good team. 
And my dad asked a couple of the scouts in the parking lot, what did they think of the Hanson kid? And, and, and they said, well, I, you know, he'll get drafted. He's, a, you know, a left-hander for, with, you know, with, with marginal major league stuff. He'll get drafted. My dad said, no, about the right-hander. <laughs> <laughs> so, but uh, I, I, I pitched in some big games. I knew Rosie Gilhausen had interest in me. And Art Lilly uh, was a scout. I know they had interest in, in that pitch that I threw and the fact that, that they knew I could go out and, and, and at least at the lower levels end up getting people out and making them look good for a few years. But it was, it was when, I, when I really developed was, uh, was with Tracy Stallard in, in, the, uh, in the California League and made the all-star team there. Uh, I, think, I think back then, uh, because I think – until I got, I ended up getting drafted because I was 69th out of 365 uh, in the uh, at the Vietnam War time, and uh, I ended up having to go to Fort Leonard Wood, Missouri, instead of going to the Dominican or Mexico or Venezuela, where I think at the time I really had a rhythm going. And when I came back, I, I, I was just not the same pitcher. I was I was okay at Double A for a couple of years and. You know, I never really could get past Jack McKeon. He was a Triple A manager, and I didn't throw uh, exceptionally hard, but I, get, I could get people out. But uh, you know, I remember with Jack one one time they toward the end of spring training, and I'd always get kind of a tired arm. And a lot of guys uh, like me, uh, well, they they go in spring training, they're they're ready to go, and at the end, arm doesn't hurt, but it's tired, and your your velocity drops some, a little bit flat. But they got me into a Triple A game against. What ended up being almost the starting lineup for the for the Orioles for like the next seven or eight years. Hmm. We're talking about Gritch and Dempsey and Desensei, and I mean this this, this team was stacked. <laughs> McKeon's the manager, nine up, nine down, and, and nine of the hardest frozen ropes you've ever seen hit ever, <laughs> but right at people. So uh, that was kind of my last time with McKeon, and he had a lot of clout, but. Uh, you know, love, love, love the Royal organization, love what they did, you know, when they had uh, had the academy, you know, down there in, uh, in Sarasota, you know, where, where one of my favorite guys, favorite Royals, uh, Frank White, came out of. Yeah. You know, very, you know, really a, a wonderful time in Royal, Royal, Royal history. Yeah. Now, going back to when you actually signed the contract, there's a funny story in the book with the, with the cigar smoke. Talk about that. Yeah. Yeah, I mean... Uh, it had to be the fastest sign in the history of baseball. <laughs> I mean, it, uh, I'm allergic to smoke. I mean, even though I ran a nightclub and uh, one t- a couple for a couple of years, but I mean, um, they got me in that doggone room, and and I wasn't exactly sure where I was drafted, but I I had some pretty good numbers, and and I was planning on negotiating a little bit. Uh, John Sherrill, down the years and years later, said I was one of the better negotiators that he would send in to try to sign guys, but I wasn't very good in this one. They, it was a small, small uh, uh, motel room, and they were both puffing their smoke. I mean, they knew exactly what they were doing, and I just wanted to sign the damn contract and get on a plane and, and get the heck out of Dodge. So, uh, yeah, that was a very, very short signing process. I think I got uh, 2500 in the incentive or 3500 in the incentive bonus and the uh, and uh, went up to uh, 
where the heck did I did I start? I think I started up in, in Canada in Winnipeg. You did, yeah, you did. Actually, I wanted to ask you about that. So, first year in pro ball, you played for Spider Jorgensen, and oh, uh, great guy. Yeah, and then you had four teammates uh, that made it to the big leagues, all pitchers: Norm Angelini, Al Autry, Doug Bird, and Jim York, who I think you knew from college. But what do you remember about that first year in Winnipeg? Oh, that was that was phenomenal. I want to say the first game that I started. You got me, who got like $3,500 or whatever I got uh, in, in my bonus, going against Don Gullett. You know, so you got me throwing probably 84-87 with this goofy uh, thing that I'm throwing, going against a guy that uh, was one of the top pitchers in the country, you know, throwing in the upper 90s, I think, back then. So that was an amazing experience, and we, we, we actually played our games uh, up in Canada, you uh, know, in a, in a big football stadium you know so it, it was that was something else i mean and uh, you know beautiful girls uh, uh up there in canada it was it was it was quite an experience uh, i i enjoyed it immensely but not really as much as i did the the next year from a from a uh, production standpoint but i i do know this the following year well the following spring training after the winnipeg experience and, and angelini was a roommate of mine you talking about great guys doug bird uh, we end up going to spring training, and there's like 200, 200 players going to camp, and only four teams breaking. And huh. they, they said they're going to keep a few for like extended spring training. And I, uh, I'll never forget this one, man. I ended up doing the math. I, I think I was kind of a math minor, and I could see I'm in trouble because I'm coming off like three, three seven with a decent ERA, a lot of strikeouts, but who cares? And uh, my first, I think it was my first bullpen live, I've got Joe Gordon and Tommy Hendricks on the field hitting ground balls. And I tell the catcher, I said, come here. And I'm supposed to just be throwing, you know, throwing fastballs mainly. I said, I said one's a fastball, uh, uh, two's a curveball, three, uh, or wiggle is, is this thing. And he said, you're throwing BP. And I said, yeah, 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 I'm throwing BP. I said, but I'm, I'm throwing BP, and I want to, I want to look good, you know. So, anyways, you you couldn't hurt a loud foul. It, it reminded me of the time I threw the, uh, when I talk about BP battles in the book about Wally Joyner, there was there was no chance. But I mean, it was early in the in the year, and pitchers dominate the in spring training especially. And Joe Gordon says, hey, what the hell's going on out here? <laughs> and I said, Mr. Gordon, I'm out here for my benefit. Not the hitters, <laughs> and that 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 was absolutely exactly what I needed to be able to break. And I, I actually pitched so well that if I didn't have to go to uh, uh, boot camp uh, out in California, I would have made the double A team. Really? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I was absolutely on fire, and uh, because the, because of the thing, I mean, it was just a pitch they couldn't hit. And uh, or or make make solid contact, you know. But it surely wasn't the velocity. It had some movement, and I, I could pitch behind the count with a with a breaking ball or a changeup. But that I just took a shot at that. I easily could have gotten released off of what I said to Joe Gordon. I mean, Tommy Hendricks, Joe Gordon, and I'm saying I'm out here for my benefit, not theirs. <laughs> you know, That's but great. I made the California League team, and I think if I hadn't, if if Reno wasn't in the damn league, where I had learned how to play play a blackjack. 
I, I think I would have set an all-time record there because if you if you check the stats, I probably think I, the two times I went into into Reno, I gave up six or seven runs. Well, if you take a look at the total runs given up with an ERA under two, uh, that that was that was that was a, that was a wonderful uh, it was a wonderful summer. Let's put it that way, and it it was cut short by having to go to Fort Leonard, Missouri for uh, uh, I got into the National Guard. So yeah, the number. The number was uh, 1.86, but a 7-3 and record. California League All-Star as well, uh, pitching there for Buddy Peterson. You mentioned uh, Joe Gordon. I've got to ask about him. I just finished up uh, you know, about three months of my life researching him and talking to people that knew him. And Do you have any other Joe Gordon stories besides that, or is that the only one we really oh, I talked wish about? I, I, I wish I did. I yeah. mean, but but I, I've got to count him right at the top, top of my all-time favorites uh, just because um, you know just the numbers – uh, that that little speech that came out of my mouth, I know, got me uh, seen by by the people that needed needed to see me. I, so I, I wish I had more for for Mr. Gordon, but he's a he's an icon as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, you you, you were great there, like you said in San Jose uh, that season. I got to mention uh, one of your old roommates too. It's funny because I already had him as one of the questions I wanted to ask you about. I, I love these. I'm going to ask you about a few kind of obscure cup of coffee guys throughout the the interview because I love those kind of guys. So Norm Angelini, talk uh, talk about him. I've always been intrigued by him. Norm, boy, you talk about hammer time. Uh, a breaking ball that was a 12 to six hammer. Uh, and and Normie was one of the funniest human beings on the planet. I mean, he and he and John Rocker, they're they're, they're two 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 left-handed peas in a pod. Uh, but but Norm was just a wonderful guy, and uh, you know got to the big leagues. I was I was so happy that I mean he got a cup of coffee up there for him. But uh, left-handed pitchers that can that can create mishits, just like Mike Mignani. Norm was a lot like Mike. Mike ended up staying up in the big leagues for eight or nine years, you know. But uh, but Norm was just—he's just a wonderful guy, and he was a good—he was a good roommate. And uh, I don't know where he is now. I mean, he's—he might be a stand-up comic somewhere. He was a funny guy. <laughs> in uh, 1971, then you were at Elmira pitching for Harry Malmberg, and you played uh, with a couple other cup of coffee guys there, Mike Jackson, uh, Monty Montgomery, and you were good there, too, 4-4 four and four with a two seven zero. So talk about uh, your memories of Elmira. Well, you know, the incentive bonus that I got, you know, was, was important to me. And, uh, you know, you've got, to, you've got to be there for 90 days or you're going to uh, not get your bonus. And... Uh, uh, Harry had me come in. I mean, I was I was pitching extremely well for a very very good team, and uh, he they trapped me, uh, they punked me. They basically said that on the 89th day that I was going to go out to San Jose to be a player coach, and they they felt that I I I, I had everything that that it took to uh, you know to uh, be a, a, a possibly a major league pitching coach someday, and uh, and then you know then they. Everybody, the, the, the joke—the joke was on me, but that was that was up to Harry. Harry, I remember we were like, I don't know, tw- twenty-four and twenty-three, with a team that should do well, and he basically went on a rant, uh, an all-time rant, uh, and said, you know, if we don't get our acts together, we're out of there. And I want to say we won twenty games in a row, and we, we just ran off the lake. I mean, it was it was no contest, hmm. but. Uh, yeah, I can remember. I like I like pitching that Elmira Park, just like I like pitching in San Jose. They were they were big ball ballparks. 
they, they covered up a lot of mistakes. Yeah, and then, so you did make it up to double-A, then your final season pitching uh, pro ball Jacksonville, where I used to live. Um, You went 2-1 and with a 3.71. Billy Gardner, of course, went on to manage the the major leagues. Um, So, you know, talk a little bit about uh, what you remember about Jacksonville and that year. Oh, Billy was just wonderful, you know, and, and, you know, you you think about four or five things in your life that you wish you could turn around. You know, I mean, I I can think I'm off the top of my head, but one one of them was when... I mean, I was on one of those roles that, that, that old Rock Hansen would get on, and, and he brings me into a ball game, uh, an important game, because we were actually getting back into the playoff hunt down there, and uh, brings me in. I want to say it was a 2-1 count. And he said, look, uh, we, we, you've got a stiff coming up after, after uh, Galbraith. Rod Galbraith was a, was a damn hitter. And he said, I did nothing but breaking balls. And Tommy Harmon was a catcher. And uh, I threw... I threw him like seven, seven breaking balls, or seven things, and uh, I mean you're talking about pu- uh, he, like hitting it off a, off a pool cue. I mean uh, he, he was he was fouling balls off that uh, he looked like a monkey screwing around with a football. <laughs> and uh, Harmon puts down breaking ball and I shake. Puts down breaking ball and I shake. He puts down one in, and I said yes. And I thought I could spot it, and I left it over the plate and. He hit it off the left field foul pole, huh. or or fair pole. So uh, that was one thing I I remember. I me- remember hitting eighty to hundred ground balls to Frank White every single day. I mean, every single day. And I remember getting uh, getting hustled by uh, Denny McLean a couple a couple times. What do you mean hustled? Yeah, golf. Oh. <laughs> Yeah, he, he set it up. I was the best golfer on the team. Allard Baird was uh, was right there with me, or Hal Baird, excuse me. And uh, he uh, he birdied uh, nine and eighteen two different times. Huh. <laughs> going in, going in level into the ninth and eighteenth hole, and we weren't playing for a dollar. So uh, yeah, that was. Uh, that, that was some experiences there. Uh, that, I, I I loved Jacksonville. It, it was it was wonderful uh, place to live, and uh, you know, I've talked about it with my family. I said if we were ever to move down to to Florida, I said I'd want to go to Jacksonville, not not down to Orlando. Yeah, well, I loved it there too. It's a great place. Um, you mentioned Frank White. He was 21 years old. I mean, could you see? Obviously, you couldn't have predicted eight Gold Gloves and what he became. But I mean, could you see? You know, high end talent. Did you pretty much know he'd go? You know, a long ways. No doubt about it. Yeah. You know, he could really throw too. Uh, maybe not as as good as Manny Trio, but he had a he had a good arm. Uh, he just he had it. He had the it factor that that you see uh, in makeup, in uh, perseverance. You know, he's a guy that that uh, it's, it's been very strange the way it's it's worked out for Frank you know, with the Royals over the years. You know, just uh, I've always wondered why he never really got his opportunity to manage. Uh, just uh, but it didn't happen. And uh, but this, yeah, he was he was he was legit, and uh, he had all the makings. Uh, to had all he all he needed was at bats. Give him enough at bats, and you know he's going to be there a long, long time. And he was. Yeah, he definitely was. And you ended up after that year walking away as a player, at least. Um, I mean, when you look back now, maybe the numbers. I don't know. Maybe the numbers are more impressive today than they would have been back then. I mean, your numbers were damn good if it was today. But how come you decided to walk away after that year? I started getting into golf. My my first wife was a was a world class tennis player. 
uh, I started playing a lot of golf and, and uh, playing against some good players, and I thought I thought I could do it in golf, and uh, really that that was that was not going to happen after <laughs> reading a few uh, things about uh, Jack and what he put in and the, the, the time and experience of playing the game of golf. I just decided I was going to give that a shot. And uh, I just didn't, I, I didn't think that, uh, I thought I could pitch several more years uh, uh, in, in the minor leagues, but really questioned whether my velocity was going to be a hindrance to get to the top level. You know, I, I really haven't second-guessed that. Uh, I second-guessed the, the desire to, thinking I was going to go on the golf tour. Uh, you know, George Brett can, can tell you that that wasn't going to happen. David David Howard, guys that I, I played golf with a lot, I was just, I was just too erratic. I'm a, I'm a fun guy to play with because I can hit some spectacular shots, but, you know, with a wide-open fairway, if there's a little tree, I'll probably hit the doggone ball behind it and then and pull you know, some kind of crazy shot. But, uh, yeah, I, 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 just, I just felt at the time, that I had a chance to do it because of my competitive desire, but I really never got to a good golf instructor uh, that really could help me. And it's kind of how I melded into being a, a pitching coach or, or, or a person really consumed to wanting to be a pitching coach because I, even though I went to a few golf instructors, I think they were just kind of stealing money and you know saying, well, your swing's great. You know, why, what would you, why would you want to change it? Never really got in anybody that could really get me to 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 get into that think box and then 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 see it, feel it, and trust it the way that I seem to be able to do with with a lot of pitchers. Yeah, well, so you know, took a year off doing that, and then also I love this part since I'm the whole radio thing. You emceed at Dragonfly Nightclub, ended up right. ma- managing a group, and then tell this story. You indirectly become involved with Saturday Night Fever. No, no, I, I ended up. Uh, I got divorced and uh, learned how to bartend, but uh, was still wanting to get back into the baseball business. But while I was kind of searching for for a spot in, in, in professional baseball or college baseball, uh, a good friend of my dad opened up uh, one of the, at the time, probably the top nightclub, a public nightclub in, in California. And it was a it was a Chinese big big Chinese restaurant in Marina del Rey, and then they had this this nightclub, and I ended up talking <laughs> talking the uh, well telling the people I could handle myself, and I ended up going from being a bouncer that never had to bounce anybody to to being the host of the damn place, <laughs> and, and and part of my part of my job was to try to create uh, action and 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 revenue. And I could see the dance contests and fashion shows was what, what was going on. And I went to some private clubs. Uh, my place was the one in Hollywood that was the number one. And I could see, you know, kind of how they went about their operation. And uh, so, anyways, I was putting on dance shows on like Tuesdays and, uh, and Wednesdays. We'd do a fashion show uh, or dance contest, and then and then the, the next day a fashion show. And I get. I get clothes from different boutiques, and eventually, uh, one of the best dancers, disco dancers in the world, Denny Terrio, uh, somehow came out to Los Angeles. I don't know what he was doing out there, besides chasing women, and he ends up finding out about this group called Unity, which was a group that everybody looked different in. 
had a had a, had a dog on Alaskan guy and a girl from Sweden and a Filipino girl and anyways Terrio ends up becoming part of the the dance group Unity and after about a couple of months we were over at this my my place because it, it, we got so so big that people would follow this group and so I was working part time at the at the at the nightclub and and running around with this this group. And uh, Terrio, after the after the first set, before our second set came in, and sat everybody down, he said, "I'm going to New York." And we said, "For what?" He said, "I'm going to teach John Travolta how to dance for some big big movie." And that was Saturday Night Fever. Huh. That's a cool story. <laughs> that was it was amazing. He was as good as you get. I mean, uh, but uh, and I at the uh, when he came back, he decided the group should disband me and and go to las vegas and do some things and he thought he could pull off some things that he didn't he ended up having that that dance fever show for a year or so but the the group ended up uh getting rid of him i, I as i recall and wanting me to come back and i said no i'm not going to come back and that's when don Preece, who was the assistant director of the major league scouting bureau and ray Poitivant, who was a west coast supervisor and knew me from the past said hey we want you as a young scout, and that's how I got started in scouting. Yeah, you did that. You did some coaching at Pepperdine as well before that, and then, yeah, the uh, scouting bureau from 76 to 80. Now, you came back to the Royals organization in 81, um, served as an area scout from 81 to 83, also were pitching coach for Sarasota uh, during that time and also Butte during that time as well. So how did you end up with, uh, with Kansas City? Well, I, I originally had signed with Kansas City, and you know John John Charles, you know the bottom line is he's been my my mentor and he, he's he's been the guy that has always looked out for me and I I can remember when I was with the Major League Scouting Bureau, John came to Scottsdale, Arizona, and he gave an unbelievable speech and it was very much needed because the Scouting Bureau at the time that I think now is is disbanded uh, was a group of scouts they had more scouts than a, a typical organization would have but they were spread out around the country and but they were thought as scabs and uh, John John gave just uh, one of those speeches that, that needed to be said to to everybody and it, it was it was huge uh, in regards to how people felt about the job that they were trying to do for so many different organizations and I, I remember telling John afterwards, I said, uh, you know, John, uh, I'd like to work for you someday. Uh, really impressed with uh, with you and, and the way you've gone about your business. And John Schurls was a guy that, <laughs> this is a funny story. Uh, I don't know if my wife is going to enjoy it, but <laughs> if she ever hears this radio deal. But John Schurls, I remember back in that, I think I told you, when I said to Joe Gordon, "I'm here for my benefit, not the not the not the not the pitchers." Well, at the time, my ex-wife uh, was, I think, 14th ranked in the world in tennis, hmm. and she was a serious looker. And she ends up uh, losing, I think, on purpose, uh, some match down in, I think she was in Puerto Rico or Costa Rica or something. And she calls me and says, I- "I'm going to meet you in spring training." And I said, "I said, look, there's 200 people here. There's 200 doggone people here. 
uh, our players, and they're only going to have four teams. I said, you can't come here. Well, she came anyways. <laughs> she was headstrong. She came anyways. And so she shows up. It was, it was, it was at night. And, and I told her, I said, look, I said, you cannot let anybody know you're here. And I had a real good roommate. And uh, she said, I won't. So anyways, in the morning, we, we, we leave like at 6 o'clock, 7 o'clock in the morning to go to the ball fields. We don't come back until 4. I mean, they give us uh, carrot sticks and celery and some soup, you know, and some Gatorade or water. I didn't have Gatorade back then, water. And I get back to the hotel, and I'm starving. I can't find her. <laughs> and there was a restaurant down the street, and uh, I thought, well, maybe she's down there. And I'm looking around. Well, I, I was so hungry. I was ready to eat one of my, one of the pillows in the damn uh, <laughs> uh, hotel room, and I, I so I go to the to the chow line where everybody was eating. And who do you think was serving salad? <laughs> my first wife. And I said, "What are you doing?" And she said, "Well, that cute guy with the mustache wanted me to wanted me to uh, work this." That was John Shirles. <laughs> So anyway, John Charles is going in the Hall of Fame. He's one of the smartest human beings, baseball people in the world. What he did with uh, in Kansas City and what he ended up doing in uh, in Atlanta with all those all those pennants in a row was uh, spectacular. And he 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 was my sponsor, and uh, I'll never uh, I'm indebted to anything I've ever done in the game to him. Yeah, wow, that's a great story. You uh, so getting back to the book of baseball guys, some great scouting uh, stories from this. Now you know Brett Saberheck and a lot of teams were scared off of him. You know he lost some velocity, but not you. You even went uh, and scouted him incognito and and stayed. You know the other scouts packed up after the second inning, and then you know you hunted down a neighbor kid to bring your car back so you can get your radar gun and all that. Kind of tell a quick version of the Brett Saberhagen story. Yeah, well, saves saves. I saw him uh, the first time. Uh, you read the book it's a it's a chapter that's it's very lengthy but it's it talks about me when i was surfing and i met a young young guy on a wave at, at malibu real real early in the morning and and uh anyways one thing led to another and 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 the, and the kid says well you know i go to cleveland high school and and and, and there's a young player in, in my same grade uh that's like 15 years old his name's saves you might want to look at him and i actually was going to a ball game that day, Reseda against Cleveland at Reseda. <laughs> so three or four hours after after I'm I'm surfing, I'm 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 coming in to see Saberhagen. I'm coming in to see Cleveland High School. I didn't know Saberhagen from Adam, but I knew he had long. Uh, I, the kid said he had long blonde hair. Well, I saw him thrown from the outfield. I didn't realize it was him. Bottom line is, I find out that the kid in left field that had perfect arm action. After I talked to his dad, Bob Saber, he went by the named Saber. It was his son. I was the first scout, I think. Well, I was the first scout with the Royals anyways. And maybe the first scout to ever turn in a report, like a follow report on him. Because he had such clean arm action from the outfield, I knew this kid was going to develop into a pitcher. And as a junior, he was a high-end follow. Well, what happened is my territory got changed slightly. (laughs) And I lived down the street from a from a uh, from the field that I eventually saw him throw an average major league fastball, but because the boundaries changed, I didn't have Saberhagen, so I actually went to a game incognito. 
just like I've chatted with you before about incognito and playing blackjack or something. <laughs> uh, I, I came on a bike with a bandana around my head and a basketball in, in my arm. And I, and I watched Saberhagen uh, throw a, what they call a 20 to 30 fastball. Uh, the, the guns of these days would be, it would be equivalent to a, a 78 to 81 mile an hour fastball on the, on the, on the faster gun. You know, so, but I knew what he had before. I knew I'd seen him at the start, and bottom line was, I kept, I kept my ear to, to his dad, basically finding out how he's doing. Nothing really had changed, and one of his last games in high school, I'm in the ballpark. I went to the right field side because, once again, incognito. I didn't want to wear some goofy outfit. I came as myself. But I knew some scouts would be there, and two of the finest scouts in baseball history, uh, Jesse Flores Sr. and George Genovese, were at the game. And the velocity that he had shown the first time I saw him, same velocity. They left the, they left the, they left the game after the second inning. And whatever happened, it was a miracle for me. I was in the ballpark. The adhesions in his shoulder loosened. From what I think what happened is he tried to slam dunk a, a basketball and it didn't didn't work and he jammed his shoulder. Well, he showed an average major league fastball. Now I saw that from a distance. I didn't see it from a gun reading, but my eyes said something happened. And that's where I got a kid get my radar gun, which I had decalibrated down to where 83 was an average major league fastball. And the kid for the next three innings took the gun and got readings of 81-84 on my gun. So he, he, everybody liked everything else about his fielding ability, uh, ability to change off his fastball. Could, he could spin a curveball, good athlete, very projectable. Well, I was the only guy outside of the kid doing the radar gun readings that knew how hard he was throwing. And luckily, luckily we were able to, to, to get the draft on him because I pestered Dick, Dick Balderson big time to get him. Um, and uh, he did. He pulled the trigger. I want to say the third day of the whatever the year was. He was he was he was drafted uh, in the 19th round, and uh, arguably one of the finest pitchers that ever towed the slab. Uh, just he ended up getting hurt later on in his career. He was just a phenomenal pitcher. You know, and at 21 years old, winning the Cy Young and and uh, and uh, winning that seventh game of the World Series. Uh, just, just phenomenal uh, guy. Yeah, that's amazing. And then also, I wanted to ask you one of the other uh, scouting stories. I mean, the, people are going to love the book too because it shows how much you love the Royals. I mean, you love the Royals as much as anybody. I mean, you're hiding guys. You're going incognito. Speaking of hiding guys, so Cecil Fielder, tell kind of <laughs> how he fell on your lap. Well, Cecil, Cecil was the best friend of a of a young man by the name of Roland Arunia, who might have been the favorite player that I ever signed for like a thousand dollars. And uh, 6'4 runner in the 60, 70 arm from the outfield on a 20 to 80 scale, uh, had a chance to hit. And his twin brother, a couple of, uh, I think the year after he signed, got killed in, a, in an auto accident, as I remember. And uh, it just it changed, it changed things for Roland. But his best friend was Cecil Fielder, who I had heard about, about a, about a kind of a overweight, guy that could slam dunk a basketball and he played quarterback and you know but 
anyways, he gets drafted, I think, by the Phillies and and ends up going to UNLV and has some issues there. And he, he quits school and he comes back. It, it, that's the way the, the story was presented to me. By so, well, anyways, to make a long story short, uh, Roland brings him out to to a team I was running for the Royals at the time. In fact, Brett pitched on the team, not not that team, but but he pitched on uh, on this Kansas City Royal uh, winter league team. And uh, the first pitch this guy hits off of me, and I'm not easy to hit. He hits the damn ball. I think it was at Pasadena or Glendale Junior College. He's on top of a doggone uh, gymnasium, <laughs> and uh, I'm thinking, "Holy smokes!" And, and through the rest of his BP, I could see this guy. This guy got a chance to hit. So I bring him and Roland down to the down to the bullpen. I said, "Look, I said you can you can play in our ball club, but if I see, if I see a full time scout or a scout that's got some juice, you ain't playing." End, end of conversation. You're not playing. And he said, okay, that's all right. So, anyways, I get him like almost the last, I think it was like the last year or the second to last year of the secondary phase of the draft. He was like the last guy taken. <laughs> and uh, had a tremendous year in uh, in Butte. In fact, I lost my mind when he was traded for my golfing buddy, Leon Roberts. I, I actually really lost my mind. And, uh, and John Charles tried to you know, calm me down, but Cecil is unbelievable guy, and uh, made me the nicest thing ever done for me that I can think about on a baseball field was in spring training. My my first spring training as the major league pitching coach for the Kansas City Royals, and he had come back from Japan and had a couple of good years, and we get a rain delay in uh, I think it's Winter Haven is where, and I, I might be wrong on where they're. Uh, their spring training site is the Detroit Tigers. But uh, anyways, he comes out of the batting cage, and we're all on the right field area, Hal McRae, George Brett, everybody, and he starts screaming, you know, where is, where is that guy? Where is that guy, Hanson, the only guy that thought that I could play in the big leagues? Huh. He said it right in front of everybody. Unbelievably big heart. And uh, so, yeah, that was a story uh, I know that, I know that I went to sign him for twenty five hundred in the incentive, and, I, and Mrs. Fielder opens up the door and she says, uh, "She says, yes. Are you are you with the Royals?" I said, "Yes, yes, Mrs. Fielder. Is uh, is Cecil here?" Is, no, I said, "Is Cecil here?" And she said, "Don't ever call my son Cecil. His name is Cecil." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I didn't have much to give to him, but he got his twenty five hundred. He got the incentive bonus, and he ended up making making millions. Yeah, wonderful, wonderful human being. What a cool story! What a cool story. So, you know, eighty-one, eighty-three with the Royals. Then, so eighty-four to eighty-five, you're pitching coach at UCLA. Then you come back to the Royals in eighty-six to Eugene. You know, what made you decide to come back that time? Oh boy, I think a lot of it had to do with just the situation at UCLA, and and uh, uh, I think the I think the one thing that 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 kind of got got to me would be because we were on a real roll my second year because you you need to pitch a little bit different in in uh, in college baseball than in professional baseball you you pitch much much hard much more in in professional baseball than you do in college baseball but i uh, b- bottom line is uh, there were some situations uh there that i just felt i was much better suited 
for professional baseball than, than, than college baseball. But luckily, while I was there, the best thing that happened was Jeff Conine. And uh, Jeff Conine, world-class racquetball player. His dad was a world-class handball player. And when I ended up at UCLA, uh, one of the top recruits for Gary Adams, the head coach, was Jeff Conine. But it was as a pitcher. And he was only going to be a pitcher only. And Jeff had the straightest fastball that I've ever seen outside of an iron mic. <laughs> Nothing is, nothing's ever been thrown more true. <laughs> you know, from, from, from the release point to the ball coming over the plate, the ball is going to go in a, in a, in a line and it is not going to move. And even though it was 87, 88, uh, it was, uh, it was not going to work, but I was, you know, I'm known for being a maverick. I'm known for being creative, almost creative to a fault. And, you know, we, we would play some golf and he'd hit a two iron 260 down Broadway and we'd go down to the beach and we'd play four-on-four volleyball, and he'd be able to spike a ball and uh, set a ball, do about anything. This guy was the finest fielder outside of Maddox on the mound that I had ever seen. And uh, he was a 6'8", 5", 6'9", runner, and a 60. And uh, it was a no-brainer that this guy was going to end up getting drafted as a position player by me once I had the ability to do it, which was his junior year. And he was drafted in the 57th round. And he would not have played one inning of professional baseball. Zero if I hadn't drafted him. There's no way. And now his nickname is Mr. Marlin. Yeah, and and uh, a guy you mentioned earlier that the famous, you know, the Royals didn't protect him in the expansion draft, but protected David Howard instead. That's all has come back to, to, to haunt the Royals and Royals fans. But uh, David Howard is 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 <laughs> was one of my best friends. Really, I, I was too close to a lot of these players. You know, yeah. and part of the reason I got my ass booted because I was, you know, <laughs> producing, directing, or, or trying to George Rett's last day. I just got myself involved with too many things instead of just being the pitching coach. But Howie was a great guy. And, and, and helped us as a utility player, um, uh, a good, good, solid player. But Jeff Conine was a special guy. Yeah. And, and I can remember in, a, in one, uh, as we were analyzing who was going to be protected and, and who wasn't, and this was my coup de grace to where I knew I was gone. Uh, Hal McRae obviously has the floor. Conine, if you go to A to Z, it's gonna, he's going to be talked about early. And Hal talks about Conine. And then I then then instead of showing some class and some time and allowing him to finish his sentence, I jump right in and talk about him being very dependable. He's going to hit, even though his swing <laughs> isn't the prettiest. He's going to make it. Blah blah blah. Right after Hal had, had just, just you know said, "Hey, look, I, I think this guy is is one that we can go ahead and, and let move on." Ugh. And I remember Bruce Keeson going in, down in the elevator. Saying what? What are you doing? You know why? Why did you say that in the way that you said it? And I said, I know I blew it. I know I blew it. So after the '93 season, after we had one hell of a year pitching-wise, I I got bumped. But uh, that's all right. <laughs> uh, and, and Conine had a wonderful career, and he's now Mr. Marlin. Yeah, well, because he was never going to be Mr. Royal, to George. <laughs> well, true enough. You got a point there. So Eugene Emeralds, nineteen eighty-six to eighty-eight. Uh, some great young pitchers there. How about a young Kevin Apier? Talk about what you remember about his early days. Oh, Ape, uh, Ape, 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 Ape's the greatest man. 
I mean, he, he, he said he said on the book, I got my book in front of me, he said, without guys' ability to think outside the box and willingness to embrace the unconventional regarding my style, much of my major league career may never have come to be. Uh, thank you, Kevin. You would have done you would have done very well with or without me, but uh, Ape Man, he was something else, boy. Uh, you talk about tenacity. Uh, I can tell you a story down in Puerto Rico uh, because I, you know, I, I ended up getting fired in '83 and '84, '85. I'm I'm doing my thing, you know, for Kansas City, kind of a troubleshooter guy. You know, and even though I wasn't the major league pitching coach, uh, I, I was a significant guy because they'd send major league players to me and I'd clean them up. But, uh, anyways, I go early to San Juan for a big game against the, uh, they call it the, the dream team down there. I mean, they, they had Bayerga and they had Alomar and they had Gonzalez and they got Delgado and they got, I mean, one high-end player after another. I got to the ballpark a little early. I thought I'd watch a little BP. And the guys taking BP were the guys I just talked about. And they said, hey, Hanson, Hanson, get over here. So I go over and we start talking. And they wouldn't stop talking about Apier. They said, what in the hell? This guy, not only can we not hit him, he screws us up for the next day. I mean, Kevin Apier was as good a competitor. I mean, I uh, as anyone, I mean, I, Gooby was right there with him. Monty was was in the mix. Saves Coney, but this guy was relentless, man. And uh, he never took a pitch off. He would never take a pitch off, man. He was as tough as you get. And if our team, I think, would have been a little better, uh, he would have won a Cy Young Award. But he he, he fit right in there with the Randy Johnsons of, of the world that people did not want to face because it seemed like he'd either throw the damn ball in the dirt or up and in or whatever, or he'd just paint. Yeah. And he, and he, and he could throw his slider with the three different breaks, too. Yeah. Another, a couple other guys you had that I wanted to ask you about, because I love the obscure guys. Hector Wagner, Jim Campbell. Do you remember anything about those guys? <laughs> oh, Waggy. Uh, yeah, I mean, I remember as a double-A pitching coach, you know, coming in with, I think people were wondering, how in the hell is this guy going from Eugene to double-A and actually pushing out Rich Doobie, who's a terrific pitching coach. Yeah, major league pitching coach for a long time. Major league pitching, very good. And you know, I could tell you stories ad nauseum about what happened when I came in because they're wondering, what, what am I doing? <laughs> you know, good reputation as a scout, but what am I doing jumping Rich, Rich Doobie? But uh, where was I? Hector Wagner and Jim Campbell. Hector, Hector Wagner, okay, so... We we get to the uh, we get to toward the end of spring training, and I am absolutely campaigning big time. After I had done a couple of mini clinics that ended up boosting my reputation for Hippolito Pichardo. Oh, I love that guy! One of the finest sinkers in the history of baseball. And uh, they said I can't have him taking a double A. They said he can't have him, but but Joe Klein, I want to say, said, "Hey, we'll give you somebody else." Pick pick somebody else. So I pick Hector Hector Wagner. <laughs> he said Hector Wagner. Why do you want Hector Wagner? And I said I, I think I can help him. I said I know I know how to speak Spanish, and I like I like his arm action. I, I made up something. <laughs> well, anyways, uh, I, don't, I don't want to say it was it was Angelini back then that helped. No, Angelini was with me. Uh, Bottom line was Hector Wagner was put in a situation where 
when he pitched his first three outings, I had our best reliever right behind him. I was able to talk. I think Jeff Cox was the manager at the time. And so I want to say Hector's first three outings, he didn't get maybe one out and either base hits or walks created an inning. (laughs) And our best reliever got him out of the inning. (laughs) Well, I mean, it was it was it was done perfectly, you know. For a change, I was a had we had a good game plan. Well, Hector Wagner had had a unbelievable year in uh, in Double A, and ended up getting to the the doggone big leagues. Yep. You know, and uh, was the other one Jim Campbell? Yeah, Jim Campbell. He had the mustache, didn't he? <laughs> oh hell yes, yeah. Jim, Jim's in my video that I did with uh, with Saves. Uh, called Power Pitching that I did back in 88. Nuh-uh. Oh, yeah. Can I see it's that? A hell, it's a hell of a video. I mean, uh, people people love it. Can I see it someday? Yeah, I mean, I think everybody everybody likes it. I, I get I get more, you know, I don't have any reviews on the book because I don't know how to market the damn thing. But, <laughs> uh, but, but, the, but the video went out and, and uh, sold a, a lot of copies and saves us in it. As a, as a young pitcher, I mean, you can see that. I remember telling them after the, after we did the video at Pepperdine, I said, uh, I said, can I, can I tell you my thoughts on, on a few little things? He said, look, he said, I'm fine. He said, I'm, I'm, I'm the youngest comeback player in baseball history. I don't really need to do much. I said, okay, Saves, that's fine. And the 88 was a struggle. And that's when I was asked to try to help him out with and giving him a couple of pitches. And that's in, that's in the book. And he ended up having one of the finest seasons in baseball history, when, yeah. when, when you include the fact he was in uh, uh, the American League with the, with the DH and, and a bunch of bombers sitting on the bench, ready to ready ready to beat you. Oh yeah. So you know, uh, but uh, but Jim Campbell was was in that. Uh, Jim, Jim, I thought was going to end up pitching the big leagues, much much like like Mignani. He couldn't turn over his change like Mignani, but he threw about the same velocity and had the same kind of breaking ball. But uh, yeah, those two guys—that that was a fun time. I mean, that's when you you really find out if this is what you you want to do when you get into the dog days of uh, hanging around, you know, sites like Memphis or Omaha, and it's hotter than hell, and your team may not may not be doing very well, but you're you're still grinding and trying to help guys get to the next level. Yeah, I think I think Campbell pitched maybe like five games in the big leagues or something. So, a little. Yeah, I mean, just like just like Dennis Oil Can Moeller, just another yes. real late late Dennis. draft. I think Dennis is scouting now for the Dodgers. Yeah, yeah, I talked to him. Yeah, actually. so I mean, it's it's it, it really means a lot, uh, you know, to get guys like uh, Doug Doug Linton. He's a court he's coordinating for the Colorado Rockies. Yeah. He was one of my proteges. Uh, Rafi Chavez. He got to the big leagues coaching with Seattle. I think he's a coordinator now for the Phillies. Uh, you know that that's that that's my my calling, and I've had opportun- many opportunities to get back in pro ball. But it's, it's been to try to try to help out some of these uh, these young aspiring coaches, or really help out some of the some of the moms and dads that come in here to to the barn, you know, to get some help. Uh, and and hopefully, you know, you start teaching the right things that you know are consistent with the best in the world. Speaking of uh, Dennis Moeller, he told me that uh, Jim Campbell had the hottest girlfriend he's ever seen <laughs> in Memphis. Do you remember that or not? Yeah, yeah. You're right. We all wonder how in the hell did that uh, did that happen. But uh, Jim, Jim, Jim was a smooth talker. I love it. I love yeah, it. He was a 
the dog. I think he was, was he originally from Canada? Where the hell was he came from? I, I don't know. I just love the mustaches when I was a kid. That's all I remember. Oh, yeah. Yeah, he had a good one. <laughs> uh, a few more random guys from AA. Uh, Ed Pierce, Israel Sanchez, Carlos Maldonado. Any memories of those three guys? Any of those guys? Oh, jeez. I'm bringing up names you haven't thought of in 20 years probably, right? You're going, you're going way back. I remember Maldonado had a huge arm. He really did. I, I, don't, I don't remember if he ended up getting hurt or just kind of stalled out like some guys do. Yeah. You know, it's, it's amazing what happens sometimes uh, with guys that have major league stuff. I mean, um, you know, and just kind of you know, talking a little bit about what separates some of the guys you just mentioned from the big leagues. It's not stuff. But uh, I, I remember sitting in a rain delay in uh, Aguadilla, Puerto Rico, with Juan Augusto, Roberto Hernandez, and uh, Michael Perez. I think you add the, add the years in the big leagues, you're probably looking at maybe 40 years between the three of them. And we're trying to figure out or discuss, you know, what separates guys from the minor leagues to the big leagues. And, and Mike says, and Mike, Mike could, could sing and speak Spanish fluently, but he stuttered in English. And, uh, but he said, it's, 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 a, it's, it's about having a read, having a read on your, stu- your stuff. Huh. And I said, well, Mike, 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 what do you mean? You know, and he, and he, and he said it in his own way, and it's that major league pitchers know how much their pitches break. They know exactly what they're doing. You know, where where sometimes the, the if you can pitch double A, you've got the stuff in most cases to pitch in the big leagues. Then it's a matter of opportunity, taking advantage of opportunity, uh, you know, getting some experience and having and being able to adapt. Because good hitters, you know, the old saying, you got a better chance to get the sun past a rooster than to get a fastball past a Rican or past a Venezuelan. Okay, the Dominican. You better be able to pitch with your stuff and pitch to all the different quadrants and change speeds and sequence your pitches, etc. So all the guys you just mentioned were prospects. In fact, the scouting people want you to think every player <laughs> that, that you sign is a prospect. Yeah. You know, they're not. But they have to play against, they have to play with and against other, other players. But you find a lot of, you find some sleepers that like, like the Molders or like the Campbells or uh, or a guy like Mignani, you know, who was played eight ten years in the damn big leagues. Yeah, with a with a middle eighties fastball and a turned over changeup and a big loop and curveball. Did you did you have another guy in that realm? Did you have Dulcin Torres later on, or was he after you? Yeah, I want to say he was after me. I remember the name. Okay, he was a guy that I think got hurt. Had like a great year in the big leagues, and then just like fell off the planet. It was the most odd thing. Well, I had I had the Hernandez guy that had a great year in the big leagues. He was he was part of the part of the major league pitching staff. I was I was handed in uh, in two thousand and five. Oh, uh, Ronelvis. Ronelvis, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very talented kid, kind of ate, ate himself out of baseball. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know that was the that that's what I call called the impossible gig, but uh, that that was a that was an interesting time too. Yeah, you know, back back in the day. Yeah, so we'll get to that. But so ninety one, you're at Omaha. Then you come up on September 9th of ninety one as interim pitching coach. How did you end up getting interim pitching coach? I always wondered. I was like ten when that happened. And then you know, what was that like for you getting to the big leagues after all those years? Players got me to the big leagues. Yeah, yeah, and play, players have always been been the keys. You know, and I'm once 
once again. I think too close to a, to a lot of them, maybe maybe at the major league level. But uh, I got up there because uh, because Davis, Mark Davis, was having some issues, and he came down to uh, came down to AAA, and and we got him right, and he went back up, and he's dealing. And uh, you know, as the story goes, Pat Dobson uh, wanted McCray's job, and McCray found out about it, and uh, he just wanted him out of there. And I ended up actually going to Palm Springs after the season in Omaha, and they couldn't find me. <laughs> they couldn't find me. I didn't have a cell or nothing. And they were trying to find me. And I, I, they ended up finding me, and I ended up leaving from, I think, Tom Gamboa's house and flying into Kansas City and and, uh, and, and Saberhagen. Uh, Saberhagen was a key. Gooby was a key. Um, Tommy, Tommy Gordon, you know, who I was very tight with. Those guys got Guy Hansen to the big leagues. In fact, I think they tried to get me there the year before. But uh, Dobson, who had Davis in San Diego, pitching in a weaker league, uh, thought he could fix him in five minutes, and he couldn't fix him. Hmm. So they brought me in there to fix him. And then 92 was a was a year that, remember Hal McCray saying, you know, kind of behind the scenes, we would have lost over 100 games if it hadn't been for the pitching staff. And then I thought the biggest thing that I had ever really earned was the opportunity to go in 93 to still be Hal's pitching coach. And that's when I got off to do some, some, some tangents that I shouldn't have, but tremendous pitching staff. Yeah, you guys led the AL and ERA that year at 2.56. Monty had the, the club record, 45 saves that year. I was I mean, I mean, was surprised. that You mentioned tangents. I don't know how much you want to talk about that, but is there? can you elaborate on that at all or not really? Well, I mean, the the... the the key, first of all, I don't think we were we were first in the league in, in ERA. I think we were third in the league, just just behind somebody, and uh, I can't remember who it was. And but uh, it just I, I got myself involved with too many things. Uh, I, wanted, I wanted to do an anti-drug program um, because uh, a couple of my best friends uh, passed away through drug use. I just uh, I got started with with wanting to make sure that, uh, and this comes from the unity, from the music, from the disco, that I could, I could help produce George's uh, last day. And and I think people, people came to me and said it was the best production they'd ever seen up to that time. So, and that was, you know, I, I shouldn't have done that. That was not my job description. I mean, I could have been involved in some way with it, but not, you know, helping pick most of the music and, you know, having a microphone and putting it in front of Wally Joyner's face and stuff, and it just uh, it, it was a, it was a bit much. But uh, even though I got let go uh, through George and other people, I ended up staying. And I had a I had an offer from a West Coast club to come in as a pitching coordinator. And uh, if anything happened with a, a suspect pitching coach, I was going to be the major league pitching coach. And I, I'm not going to say who the, who the club was, but I had a bunch of offers at the time. But I just, uh, after playing some golf with George and and hearing, hey, we'll get you back up here, and then knowing that I was going to cross-check with Chuck McMichael and and uh, and Allard Baird, you know, Allard was an excellent scout. Yeah. It, 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 it didn't work out as a general manager, but he's an excellent scout. He and, uh, I know he and Chuck ended up, uh, cross-checking a player that I put in real high, Carlos Beltran, mm-hmm. and uh, that—that's what ended up getting Carlos Beltran in a Kansas City Royal uniform. But it was just—I was just uh, too involved with too many projects, I think, for Hal's taste, and 
was more of a pitching coach. I didn't want, you know, uh, 93 pages of uh, how to how to pitch this guy or how to pitch that guy or this weakness. I wanted to go with our strengths. I wanted to go with the strengths of our pitchers. Very much recognize who's a first ball fastball hitter. Very much recognize who's hot and who isn't. And I think I think it bugged Hal. Very smart guy and a tremendous uh, hitting coach. Yeah. Huh. Interesting. So you, you were a national cross-checker, like you said, from 94 to 95. Then you're back as bullpen coach uh, from 96 to 97 before going to the Braves organization for six years. You know, what made you choose to go to Atlanta? I'm sure, Holes, I'm assuming? No, no. Uh, at the time, uh, went from Booney, who was one of the smartest baseball people in the world, just kind of outthought himself at times. Really sharp guy. Super, super human being, too. And it, it, went, it went to Tony Muser. And uh, I just felt, after many, many meetings, that I was a black sheep there on the, on the coaching staff because I would talk about Johnny Damon. I'd talk about Carlos Beltran. I'd talk about Mike Sweeney. I kept on harping about what we had in the system. And this was before the fences were brought in and gone to natural, gra- natural grass. I thought we, we, we had the makings of a, of a special team if we just had a little bit, a bit of patience. And I quit a major league job. No one quits a major league job uh, the way I did without having full pension. Nobody. And I wasn't going to get fired. Uh, so that was, that was, well, where am I going to go? Well, I'm going to go to Sheryl's. And, and, and that's where I, I went, and I went over there as a troubleshooter. I got a chance to work with Jason Marquis and all sorts, all sorts of players, and got a chance to go into spring training and watch, you know, some, you know one of the arguably as good a trio as you're going to see with Schmoltz, Maddox, and Glavin. You know, so that was a special job. John, John brought me over to to have impact, and this watching Bob, Bobby Cox go about his business. And, and and Ned was there, you know. Uh, so it was it was it was quite a time, you know, back then. Yeah, I was going to ask you about Ned. Did you get to know him pretty well when you were over there? Well, probably the saddest one of the saddest times of, of my life, or just being in shock right with him, is when er- Earnhardt got killed. Yeah, yeah. And and I'm I'm sitting right next to him in the in the in the clubhouse. I think we had just finished with early work or something and Earnhardt's wife called Ned and we know something terrible had happened and he's earned everything that he's got he, he's a terrific uh, manager you know he reminds me a lot of Cox and that, that's what happens when, you, when you're hanging out hanging around somebody like Bobby Cox I mean he's as good as you get and, and, and Ned fed off him and really listened to him and saw the way he went about his business so that was a special time for me uh, to kind of wake up, uh, also uh, as a as a professional coach. Yeah, and then you end up back in uh, KC pitching coach for 2005. How'd that come about? <laughs> well, not to get anybody in trouble, but they tried to get me in 2003, and I couldn't get out of my contract. Oh, cool! I didn't know that's cool. Very, very odd. But anyways, we won't get into that. I don't want to get anybody in trouble, but. Uh, <laughs> bottom line is they thought I was a difference maker and 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 Allard saw me work down in Puerto Rico uh, with with uh, a lot of pitchers 
I think you had mentioned uh, uh, Phil. Was it uh, Phil George? Chris George. Yep. Chris George. Chris. Yep. Yes. And uh, just was working with a lot of Brian, the Brian Bevels of the world. They they mm-hmm. wanted me as their pitching coach, and I met him in Chicago, and they made me the pitching coach. And uh, that was an amazing year, absolutely amazing. Everybody that was in the continental United States came to my barn here, except for Zach. <laughs> He's the, he's the only guy that didn't show, and I had had a history with him in uh, Puerto Rico, where he pitched ex- exceedingly well, and I ended up being the guy kind of driving him around uh, Puerto Rico, while you know until he he hit an inning number that we decided it was time for him to leave. But uh, that was that was an amazing you know it, it was an amazing gig because Allard was trying as hard as he could to put together a team because it'd come off a couple of lousy, you know, I think a hundred lost season or something. Yeah. Oh, four was awful. Oh, three was great. And then oh, four was horrible. Yeah, it, it, it was horrible. And, and, um, I want to say I had maybe 33, 34, 35 pitchers in camp. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was a lot, you know, and I, and, 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 you know, I'm a tireless worker. I'll keep on working. I remember Joe Posnaski, he, he he caught me in, in in a moment. I think I had worked with thirty guys that day, and immediately as I come into the clubhouse, he said, "I got to talk to you," you know. And I think he called caught me in a moment where I think he wanted to try to take me down because I was, a, you know, thought I was a, I was coming over as a second coming, you know. But it, it was a tough one because uh, Jose Lima, you know, God rest his soul, yeah, uh, was coming into uh, a man's league, man. That was a tough, tough lineup that he had to go through. You know, you're, you're facing teams, what, 17, 18, 19 times a year? Yeah. And it was difficult. And then Zach, you know, he didn't he didn't show up here. And then I get to spring training, and he's – I'm a big right side of the rubber guy for righties, left side of the rubber for, for lefties, unless there's a, a reason for it. Flash is, you know, one of the few guys, uh, Tommy Gordon, that I push to the other side. But – I see him in, in, in his bullpen, and you got the the eight pack or the ten pack where everybody's throwing, you know, for for X amount of pitches, and he's got his heel flush against the uh, the right side of the rubber. I mean, he's basically almost off the rubber on the right side, and he's throwing these sideways sinkers, you know. And I'm saying, what are you? What's going on? He said, well, that's why I didn't want to come up to uh, Richmond. I said, what? He said, yeah, I, I, that's why I didn't want to come. He said, I, I knew you would, you'd say something. Well, I said, you're going to have to get Seelig to move the damn plate over a foot. <laughs> said, this, is, this is not going to work. I said, what about that grip? And he's got this offset grip. I mean, it was really offset. I said, I said what are you using this for? He said, well, that's how Maddox throws the ball. I said, no, it's not. <laughs> I had looked at Maddox's grip. So anyways, you know, and, and he ended up, through George's help, coming around and, and really pitched great his first two months, but he couldn't buy a damn win. Yeah. He just yeah. could not buy a win, and he thought Castillo could catch him better than, than Johnny Buck and blah, blah, blah. But anyways, he, he just went through a very, very difficult time. I, I, I tried to get him, I tried to get Buddy to put him in the bullpen once Tony left, and he was he was not going to do that. and it was just it was it was it was next to freaking impossible you know, because we were bringing guys from Double A to the big leagues, you know, without spending much time in Triple A. They'd come from Double A to the big leagues, and we send them to Triple A. 
<laughs> I remember that. Yep. Yeah, it, it was just you know you're just throwing stuff against the wall, and you know I was told to be patient and positive. Be patient and positive. And I was patient and positive, and then the last the uh, last day of the season, uh, they bring me into Buddy's uh, Buddy's room, and uh, Albert couldn't say get anything out of his mouth. Muzzy Jackson couldn't get anything out of his mouth. Buddy tried to say something. I said, I guess we just don't we just don't fit. It's not a it's not a real good fit with you and me, Buddy. He said, Yeah, that yeah, that's what it is. <laughs> I shook his hand. I walked out the room. Yeah. Because I stayed patient and positive uh, to the nth degree, and I really tried to back Buddy all the way through. So, anyways, it was, it was just one of those things. He wanted his his his, his guy, and he ended up bringing in uh, uh, McClure. Yeah, and they had a worse season. Oh man, he got yeah. Those, those man, those one thing I do love was uh, Buddy Bell's quote that he said. I think it was later on, but he said. Um, I'll never again after being here say that it can't get worse. <laughs> I'll never yeah, say we've I hit mean, the rock bottom. I was, I was trying to bring over guys like uh, Chris Holland and you know guys that could pitch. Yeah, and they're bringing in guys just like like I got when I, I'm, the, I'm the longest tenured. I'm not working for Atlanta anymore, but pitching coach in the history of uh, uh, the Richmond Braves, anyways. And uh, you know, so it's it's like there was one guy after another that that I, my nickname. <laughs> is rock but but you end up getting the nickname the closer so we're going to send a guy the closer and we're going to see if he can figure him out if he can't figure him out then let's just release him or send him elsewhere the van popples of the world just one after another and that's kind of the reason i i didn't go from richmond down to gwinnett when the braves left richmond down to gwinnett because i mean it's uh, there's a lot of uh, there's an extreme pressure to get these guys right to get to the big leagues, you know, and that's kind of what happened in, in 05. There's just the tremendous amount of stuff going on, unfortunately, and it, it just didn't work out uh, at the time. But I, I learned I learned some things, and the people in Kansas City are the best. They are the best. When I got fired in 2005, I think I was the second to last guy to come out of that locker room and there was only one car in the corral where the players put their car. And there were, there, there, there were a dozen, maybe 15 people there waiting to say goodbye to me because they had heard that I was going to be gone. Hmm. It was unbelievable. I mean, I, I cried when I, when I drove away because it, it meant so much to me, but I couldn't believe those, those, those royal fanatics were, were, were there to, to bid good, goodbye to me. Have you been back in this park since that day? No. Never? Wow. Well, you have to come back soon. That was soon. a tough one. Yeah. Here, by the way, here's some of the names here. I pulled up some of the names from the 05. Steve Stimley, who I talked to. Jonah Bayless. Sean Camp. Ambiorix Burgos, who I think is in jail now for trying to po- poison his ex-wife. <laughs> Nate Field. Kyle Snyder. Chris Demaria. Man, there's some names. You remember all those guys? J.P. Howell. Yeah, I remember. Ryan all, Jensen. I, remember all, I, I love all of them, you know. and It was just... Uh, it was impossible to do because when you're gonna you're gonna put Jose out there, just a wonderful guy, one of the best dancers. He was a professional entertainer too. Yeah, he was. I mean, he's wonderful, good singer, uh, but it 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 it, it was not going to work in the American League Central or in the American League for him at the time. Right. It was it was not going to work, and you go out there with a flat, you know, eighty four, eighty seven, 
and it's not going to work. And and then you get Zach, who after the first two months, I mean, he pitched great his first two months, but he couldn't get a win. And then he started getting in his own head. He started moving all over the mound and, and doing some things. So you got 40% of your starters. That was an accident waiting to happen. And then I was told that Lima had the highest ERA in the history of baseball Yeah, for anybody with over 30 wins. And then we had Burgos, Nunez, and... Uh, and Cisco, yep, Cisco in yep. the bullpen. They all threw over fifty innings, and I was also told by a stat guy that it's the first time in the history of uh, Major League Baseball that three rookies who hadn't gotten a start pitched over fifty innings each. Huh. So you put those names that you just fired out there along with that. It's it was a Rough. it was a tough year, but I I, I still uh, loved every minute of it. I, I really did. And you went over to finish up your career. So, you, you, are you officially retired then from quote unquote organizations? After was it was last year? Last year at the Braves, or when was it last year? Two years no, ago. No, no, my last year, I was a major league scout for uh, for Atlanta, and they they wanted me to get a passport and go to Dominican and go to Venezuela. I hate Chavez, so I didn't want to go over to freaking <laughs> Venezuela. I thought I might try to blow myself up next to him, so I I just uh, so I, I ended up just. Uh, just helping out youngsters around here. I got several calls to do certain things. Several people kind of insinuating they wanted me to do some things. Puerto Rico has called a few times to ask me to come down to be their pitching coach. I've just got these young girls. They're so doggone good looking. I've got to keep an eye on them. You know, they, get, they get every Tom, Dick, and Harry chasing them around. So, uh, uh, but. Uh, Anyways, now I'm trying to help out a guy uh, with with named Jeff Beck. He's the president of Proformance. They used to have Billy Wagner, Jose Batista, uh, Irvin Santana. Uh, he's trying to start up his, his his business again, and he's asked me to to look at a few players and just tell tell him you know whether whether he should follow up on them or not. He's brought in a few of his his clients and had me take a look at them, and I've I basically told him on on two of them just let him let them move along so there's little things that, that, that that's going on that I, I that I could stay in it but hell I'm 69 years old you yeah. know I've got a 43 year old wife and a 43 year old son and I got these three <laughs> teenagers you know so it's, it's 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 pretty wild you're living the life man uh all right so last four or five questions for you thanks for all your time by the way um a couple things you didn't mention in your book about injuries slash pitching just pitching questions in general I wanted to ask you um, okay, so you also hear people talk about raising the mound. I don't, it'll probably never happen again. Would that help prevent arm injuries at all, or not really? I think it would be it would be a positive. They they, they got it very low, but these these uh, major league uh, groundskeepers are so good at at getting grade and pitch that uh, I don't think that's the main deal. I mean, uh, it's it's in my book where I do talk about injuries. Where you, where you see the high, high majority of guys is there. It's called heel banging. It's when you 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 hit heavy into your heel. And an inverted W is the opposite of what I call the answer. And that's where Grenke actually. Uh, I was I was watching a game the other day, and Grenke was they were they were bemoaning the fact that he was throwing 87 to 89. And I could see that he was not getting any rotation and turn to allow him to get into his legs, and he was flailing his lead side, kind of like you've seen with Strasburg. It's called an inverted W. 
that's what's creating a lot of it. And a lot of the kids that, that have gotten hurt, they, they, they've dropped their other sport, and they, they compete 12 months a year. And it's just, it's just it's too much. So you couple, and now the New Deal is kind of a Spalding guide, keep your hands still, you know, none of the old school. You can just kind of think back to the Gubizas and the Drysdales and the Kofaxes and the Seavers and the Ryans. Fluid. I'm one of the few teachers, I think, in the pitching coaches in the world that teaches just, just a bigger delivery and and uh, and where you use your core, you use the whole thing. So that's part of the reason guys are going down. I don't think the height of the mound is the, is the key there. Now, how about you mentioned uh, Greg Holland a bit in your book as far as you know the fall off that you know the violent delivery that helped lead to the Tommy John. How was Kevin Apier able to get around that? What made his mechanics better? Well, Holland ended up in almost the same place as Apier, but Holland ran away from his arm uh, with, his, with his lower body and his, and his lead side. Kevin, st- Kevin stayed closed as long as he could, and then he'd hit and cross over, much like a Bob Gibson. Okay. Okay, so Holland, Holland was an accident waiting to happen with tremendous stuff. I mean, really tremendous stuff. The guy with the, with the delivery that I love so much is Wade Davis. Yeah. You know, and he got hurt almost doing everything that Guy Hanchin teaches, but he's a guy that's been a starter. He's been a he's setup guy. He's been a closer. And and I think it was probably time for him to have, you know, something go wrong. Yeah. Yeah, you're probably right. What about Tim Lincecum? Remember he his dad said his right. his his motion was made so he wouldn't get hurt. And some people yeah, thought he I mean, would. Yeah, Tim, Tim Lincecum. I mean, once I got fired in, in 2005, I, I was, you know, after I cried and left the, left the ballpark and came back here, uh, they wanted me to get back and, and, and get involved and help out McClure or whatever. I, I told them, I said, I'm going to do one thing, and that's going to go to my, my mailbox and pick up my check, and that's it. I said, I don't have my license and I don't have my pension. Well, bottom line, they finally talked to me to go see the top ten pitchers on their list. And the one that they wanted badly was Miller. Hmm. And I could not see Miller as a number one, number one, as a starting pitcher in the big leagues. I could not put my name on that. I put a high number on him. He was a middle to late one draft, but he was not a starter. Uh, went to three games. They kept on me, having me go back to see him. And, and, and Bard was on that, on that club also. But the, the second to last player I saw, because I forced my way to go see Longoria, even though he wasn't a pitcher, was Lincecum. And he's the guy I put, I put a ridiculous number on him. Because he was the guy over Ian Kennedy, over Miller, over anybody, and uh, I, I thought he could be a closer in the big leagues within 18 months, and I thought he could be a, a big time starter, and he was. He was won the Cy Young twice, and he's got some rings. The delivery was definitely not something that you teach, but I've got it in the book. I think I've got the damn report in there. It was something that worked. Yep. Very, very uh, consistent. Uh, with what he did, uh, feel for four pitches, plus everything. Uh, you know, just a question about his, his makeup and you know, some possible off-field questions, but ne- never had any issues with any uh, PEDs or anything. But he was, he was the guy, and they would not let me see after I saw Longoria. So I think on my list I had Lincecum 1, Longoria 2, and Miller three or four, 
and uh, they wouldn't let me see the last guy. I knew I knew that I knew something was up. They took Cole Chapin. Oh, that's the one you didn't see. Yeah. <laughs> oh gosh, <laughs> man. Wow. Uh, so, last uh, pitching question then would be pitch counts. You know, do you, wh- where do you? I, I know you're a very strong proponent of. You know, it depends on the guy. Obviously, that's a smart way to look at it. But is there a general rule how you feel about the hundred, hundred and ten magic pitch count number, that kind of stuff? Well, it's how you get there. You know, and, and that's what spring training is all about. You're building up to where these guys can throw. You know, eighty five, ninety pitches in our last in our last start before before things get going. Yeah. But the, but the key where, where a lot of guys get hurt, not so much in professional baseball, because they got they, they know what the hell they're doing is, you know, taking a young kid and, and having them go three or 45 or 50 pitches, whatever comes first, and all of a sudden you're at 75. No, no, you, you, you go at 15-pitch intervals approximately, and you don't, you don't vary off that. And that's, that's, that's one of the keys. It, it, it's really common sense. And a lot of these arm injuries that it's coming from, it's coming from what I said, not using common sense. Uh, pitching 12 months out of the year, clanking on your heel and flying your lead side open. That's what's happening. All you got to do is just get the videos and you'll see it. Yeah. You know, so uh, uh, that's part of what I, reason I'm doing what I'm doing because uh, I need to have more disciples teaching some of these things. There, there's some other guys that uh, on Facebook, uh, my co-author Tom Tom Gresham, uh, said we got to get on Facebook because he said he said you've been talking to me about Storin and you've been talk, telling me about Strasburg before the problems. Right. And I, I, I saw Ari, Arietta. I, I love Arietta, but he was throwing, you know, eighteen inches across his body for Christ's sakes. Uh, and then then Kershaw with it slide stepping all the time. I mean, all the time. It was only a matter of time before he ended up having some back problems. You know, so. Uh, some of this is just just common sense. You know, get yourself, you know, in an athletic position, get some rhythm and tempo to, and flow to your delivery. You know, set into your core, drive down the, the drive, drive down the rubber, and, uh, and and commit to your stuff. Yeah, it's not rocket. It's not rocket science. How about when you were living in KC? What would you do on an off day? Did you have any favorite? Do you have barbecue places anywhere you'd like to go in this town? I I was a golfing fanatic, and then would end up going to the barbecue place and you know get a dozen ribs and go eat it at home yeah i, I played golf as much as i could with george or howard or anybody that monty like to like to entertain you know uh but you know pretty much a pretty much a a, a golf and and how are we going to get people out the next day guy you know didn't have uh had gone through my marriage and the disco scene and all that kind of stuff so I loved my job uh, at the major league level and had enough money to, you know, to go out and, and go anywhere, you know, but uh, pretty much would spend as much time uh, with the golf or figuring out a game plan, you know, for the next day. And let's talk about your book again. Now, again, tell us what it's called and uh, where can we pick this book up at? Because I'm going yeah, to encourage people to. It's called A Baseball Guy, and it's on Amazon. And... Uh, uh, so far, I think I've probably sold you know, 250, 300 books or something like that. Uh, I've had three real good reviews, one one out of Kansas City, one out of New York, and one right here in, in Richmond. Uh, the the people that are reviewing it are, are quality reviewers, and they, they like what they hear. I think there's, uh, I think couple that with, with the video could really help out just about anybody at, yeah. at, any, at any level. 
yeah, I'm going to definitely encourage everybody to uh, to pick that up. It's a, it's a great read, and uh, I'm looking forward to seeing your video too, by the way. And then uh, my last question is, what would you like to say to all the Royals fans listening right now? Well, nobody was ha- more happier for, for the Royal fans, and some of the people in the Royal family, like Linda Smith, who was just a fabulous uh, person uh, in the scouting department that helped me uh, big time, uh, the Dean Taylors that helped put together some of what eventually happened with winning the World Series and getting to the show. But but uh, uh, I just think they're the best fans in baseball. I mean, I remember when I was a pitching coach and the bullpen coach and just meeting so many people uh, both on and off uh, the field, you know, doing doing some uh, some special events that I, that I went to and some clinics. Uh, the people of Kansas City are, are a special people, boy. And uh, they're beloved, uh, beloved people that I'll never forget.